Hello there. Welcome to our little trans-dimensional joyride, folks. Take a ride on the cutting edge. Innoventions. The future is truly in the past. Direct from a record-breaking two million years at the bottom of the evolutionary ladder. W, w Radio, your information station. Jumbo, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello and Asante Asana, and thank you for tuning in once again this week. This is show number 64 for the week of April 27th, 2008. I spent a number of days last week in Walt Disney World covering Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary, and as promised, I brought back some wonderful audio from the event. In addition to a live recording of the opening rededication ceremonies, I was able to get one-on-one -on -one interviews with Val Bunting, Vice President of Disney's Animal Kingdom, Jackie Ogden, Vice President of Animal Programs and Environmental Initiatives, world-renowned primatologist Jane Goodall, and legendary Disney Imagineer Joe Rohde. I'll also discuss the day's events, the Wild Decade fan gathering, and a look back at the park, its mission and message with fellow attendees Eric Hollister and Glenn Whalen. I'll also play audio from the presentation of the WDWCelebrations.com donation to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. I invite Jeff Pepper to come back and answer some more of your listener emails, and I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, I present to you, His Majesty, the Lion King. Welcome, everyone. It's me, Simba. You've all picked a very special day to visit. You see, today, we've come to town for a big celebration. And you, my friends, are invited to join in the fun. Senior Vice President of Operations, Aaron Wallace. Good morning. On behalf of all of us here at Walt Disney World, welcome to Disney's Animal Kingdom on April 22nd, Earth Day 2008. It marks the 10th anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom, and we are so proud and happy that you are here to celebrate with us. As a member of the opening team for Disney's Animal Kingdom, I'm, I'm very privileged standing here with many of my fellow cast members who are also opening day cast members. But we've got some very special guests as well. Joe Rohde, the Senior Vice President of Walt Disney Imagineering. He led the creative team in the development of this incredible park. And world-renowned conservationist, Dr. Jane Goodall, who was here. 
and she has been a very valued um, and treasured mentor for us throughout all of the years. I'd like to take just a moment to reflect on what this park means to Walt Disney World. We're proud that the guest experience here is very uniquely Disney. It's a combination of live animals, thrilling attractions, fantastic shows, and beloved characters like you would never see anywhere else in the world. Now, like all of our parks, Disney's Animal Kingdom was really something that was represented in one of Walt Disney's dreams. This park clearly has its roots in Walt's love of animals and nature. And we also see Walt's commitment to conservation and to the environment reflected in this park's mission and how we operate it every single day. The creation of Disney's Animal Kingdom inspired us to do more to help wildlife and it led us to establish a conservation fund that supports hundreds of conservation projects every year throughout the world. So it's fitting that today, as we celebrate a decade of dedication to wildlife and wild places, on the anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom, that we would celebrate a new name for our company's conservation fund. All of you today are the very first to wear your conservation hero button which is given to guests as a thank you when they contribute to the fund. From this, day, from this day forward, Disney's Wildlife Conservation Fund will be known as Disney's Worldwide Conservation Fund, a name that will help expand our company's long-standing commitment to the environment and nature globally and communicate the broader vision of the fund and the future of it since its inception, which has had an amazing record it's contributed over $11 million to nonprofit organizations with grants to 650 different projects in 110 different countries. Here's our new logo. Now it's an honor to share this moment with someone who's known for her own commitment to conservation and truly she doesn't need any more of an introduction, Dr. Jane Goodall. Well, thank you and good morning to everybody. How exciting it is for me to be back here to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Having been here 10 years ago when the, wild, uh, when the Animal Kingdom was first opened, and every time I come back, I feel this sense of, gosh, if I was an animal out of my natural habitat, this is where I would like to be. <laughs> and I feel so grateful to the Walt Disney Company and to the Animal Kingdom and all its wonderful, hardworking staff for providing such an amazing home for these animals. I woke up this morning and outside my window there was a giraffe, there were some kudus, there were rowan, and all of them just enjoying the early morning sun coming through the mist. What a way to wake up. And how wonderful it is to be here with more than 100 young people and their mentors from our Jane Goodall Roots and Shoots Global Youth Organization and other youth organizations that share a similar philosophy. You see, they, you see that always happens. That's great. <laughs> so these young people are helping in, in conservation and humanitarian programs all around the world. The hundred who are here are representing hundreds and thousands of others. 
and many of our projects have been recipients of these grants from the, what is it now called, the, the, what's the new, Worldwide Conservation Foundation, and we're really grateful. It's helped us and will help us to do wonderful things. So, um, it's, I believe, a place where everybody who comes will go away with a feeling that these animals here are special, that they deserve our love, our care, that we do not want a world where these animals vanish entirely from the wild places, that we need to conserve the wild places, and to do that we need to help people living in poverty in those areas. And all of those things are happening here. So I'm just so proud and grateful to be here, and I want to end up by I'm sure that the chimpanzees, if they knew, they would be wanting to congratulate you too because money has helped them. So I'm going to end up with a chimpanzee thank you. standing here with Joe Rohde. I remember sitting with Joe Rohde in the early days when the plans were being drawn up for this animal park and now here we are today, uh, more than 10 years later, side by side, Joe Rohde. Well, thank you, Jane. You know, the first time I heard Jane do her great uh, chimpanzee vocalizations. I was a 17-year-old freshman in college. Um, I had to sneak away from my job to go, like, you know, watch her in the auditorium do this. And I never would have dreamed that, um, and one of my fondest memories of the opening day uh, 10 years ago was it's Jane Goodall congratulating us on doing a good job. It's just really uh, an amazing thing. Animal Kingdom now, 10 years young, you know, millions of people have come through here and seen the things we've done. And it's, I guess you could stop and congratulate yourself, but really this is kind of an ongoing story. Uh, we at Imagineering and we of the Disney Company, we're storytellers, and anyone who's ever told a, told a story knows you've got to watch your audience, you've got to tell the story directly to people, you've got to see how the story is working, you've got to work that story, um, or it kind of falls on the table, and that's what we do every day. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's something that stays alive, it will change as we change, it'll change as you change, it's really kind of a storytelling relationship between us, the storytellers, and you, the story audience, that we build together every day as we experience the places around us. And what I particularly love about the stories at Disney's Animal Kingdom is that these stories are about truth. They contain truth within them. We, we, these stories are connected to the real world. In our first 10 years, we've not only told stories about conservation, but we've gone out and acted upon those stories in the real world so that we are part of that story ourselves, And that's kind of exciting, that you could tell a story and actually be a character within that story out in the world doing real things that really happen with real stuff. You know, they say, you know, a dream that you wish can come true, but really a dream that you strive for and sacrifice for and push for every day, that can come true too. And that's what we've done. We've done both here. 
So just as our work in creating exciting entertainment's never really done, so our work to conserve the world of nature that's the very heart of this story, that's never done. Just as we hope to bring joy and inspiration to our guests, we hope that they take that inspiration out into the world, see it every day in the living world around them, and act upon that inspiration. That's kind of the heart of Animal Kingdom. It is a place that isn't just a place that you come here, uh, a little place surrounded by a wall, a little garden in the middle of nowhere. It's like the epicenter of an entire world of nature that's real, that's all around us every day, and that all of us can experience in every way. Ten years is really kind of a baby step for Animal Kingdom. We hope to grow older and wiser and younger at heart uh, with each new stride into the future, none of which would be possible without all of you uh, who come and enjoy the things we do. And so I just want to take this moment, ten years in and hopefully many, many years into the future, to thank you for your support uh, and enthusiasm that you bring to us. So thank you all. Thank you, Joe and Dr. Jane. An extraordinary world has been created here in the past 10 years. Thank you for celebrating the 10th anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom with us and sharing in our excitement of the future and the wonder of the circle of life. celebration and enjoy the rest of your day at Disney's Animal Kingdom.
As you probably know, I spent this past week in Walt Disney World to cover Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary, not just for the show, but as a true fan of the park and its history and its mission. And I was also there as a participant and sponsor of the Wild Decade Gathering that was organized by WDWCelebrations.com, the same people that brought us together for Celebration 25 to commemorate Epcot's 25th anniversary. So what I wanted to do was talk just a little bit not just about the day's events, but maybe reflect a little bit on Disney's Animal Kingdom's past 10 years and look ahead at what the next decade might hold in store. So I wanted to welcome back to the show Eric Hollister and Glenn Whelan, who are both in attendance with me. Gentlemen, welcome back. Lou, thanks for having us. How's it going, guys? Awesome. Very good. So what I thought we would do is kind of briefly recap the day's events uh, for those people that couldn't make it down there. And Eric, for you and I, the day got started very, very early because we ended up at uh, the very empty Animal Kingdom parking lot around 6.30 to start setting up for the wild decade to work with Adam and Jason and the rest of the team to set up the tables in the Oasis. Uh, We also had some goodies that we were handing out. Disney, once again, was behind and working with Adam and his group uh, and their core team, and they really did an amazing job keeping it organized, keeping it out of way for everybody, Um, and he had a, a really nice turnout as well. Absolutely. I, I got there actually like 6.15 um, myself, and I was probably third or fourth in the parking lot. Um, so, they, but they did, they, they uh, helped us out from, from go. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, um, I, I was very impressed with Adam and his crew, the way that not only they handled it, but also the way they, they did work with Disney. Uh, you know, the cast members that were there were very supportive of what we were doing. We made sure that uh, we respected the guests that were there. Um, you know, that were just there to enjoy their day. So I think overall uh, that went pretty smoothly. Yeah, and I don't know what the final number in attendance was. I know there were were 406 or so that were registered, um, including a number of Disney Imagineers that came by. Jason Sorrell was there uh, and some other people that worked on the park. But I'd probably say the number was in maybe the 200s. I'm sure the guys will have a final number um, if they have a chance to look back. But it was nice because it was noticeably smaller than what we had for Celebration 25. It was a little bit more manageable, a little bit more intimate. You saw a lot of the same people around at the different events through the day. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of step through the events. But it was really nice. And again, these guys really had everything very, very well organized. Yeah, and they showed it, too, because uh, uh, quite often people can get all worked up about things. But everybody had a big smile on their face. They looked like not only were they enjoying having us there, but they were enjoying the whole process. They were they were enjoying and welcoming us. And it didn't feel like we were entering a high-stress situation, even though they were potentially bringing in 200, 400 people. Exactly. Well, let's go ahead and start off and talk about the day's official events. Obviously, it was also Earth Day. And like Epcot's 25th, Disney did have some things in store. And it kicked off really with the ceremonial rope drop in front of the Tree of Life. That was hosted by Erin Wallace. She's the Senior Vice President of Operations for Walt Disney World. Also, world-renowned primatologist Jane Goodall was there. Joe Rohde, obviously he is the Senior Vice President of Imagineering. He was the Executive Designer of the park. And Val Bunting, who was the Vice President of Operations for Animal Kingdom, was there as well. And I'm going to play the audio on the show, but you'll see they really sort of highlighted some of the accomplishments of the park, not just as a theme park, but what they've done 
for conservation and education efforts. Uh, what did you guys think of the ceremony? If you had a chance to get up there and see it, I thought it was. I thought it was great. Uh, very enjoyable. It acknowledged all areas of the park and uh, seeing some of the characters that have been created over the past uh, ten years appearing there. I mean, just seeing the two of the two of the puppets from the uh, Nemo attraction out front as if they were there to welcome in the 10th year as well. That was exciting. Seeing, the, seeing a, a stilt-walking uh, Yeti out there, that was just, just what a great touch. And the, the funny and maybe unfortunate thing is that so many of the guests that were there, I think, didn't really realize what was going on or what the day was or, again, like Epcot's 25th, what all these special ceremonies were, were for. As I was standing there, a number of people were sort of just looking to find the way, how quickly could they bypass the line and get over to Expedition Everest or the Safari. Yes. Again, flying flying in the face of the message that Animal Kingdom, and we try and talk about you know the park and how it should be enjoyed. Right. I heard a lot of that myself. Uh, a lot of people going, what, what are we waiting here for? And we were explaining, well, this is the rope drop before we even opened the park. I mean, that would they would be in the same situation the day before. It didn't have to be the 10th anniversary. They still would be waiting for the rope drop and wondering what we were waiting for. But to have uh, Jane Goodall up there in front of him suddenly change things around. There was a, a teacher next to me, and she was saying, oh, my God, she's in the book that I use all the time when I talk about primatology. So. I know. I wanted to be like, that's Joe Rohde, you know, the earring guy. Don't you know who these people are? <laughs> but they, they uh, you know, obviously the, uh, the park is enjoyed different ways by different people. So after the ceremony was over, I actually had the, the wonderful opportunity to be able to go into the Oasis in a private area and get some one-on-one interviews with Val Bunting, Jackie Ogden, um, Jane Goodall, and Joe Rohde. I'm going to play those on the show as well. But for me... You know, to be able to meet people like that, especially an Imagineer whose work I just admire so much like Joe Rohde and Jane Goodall, who, you know, you might not have read her work, you might not know exactly what she's done, but you know her. And to be able to have time to ask her one or two questions was an incredible opportunity, but very challenging because how do you get, you know, hundreds of questions kind of boiled down into one, uh, you know, and ask somebody uh, of their stature? Did she respond in chimpanzee? <laughs> no. Unlike the dedication ceremony, fortunately, she did not. Um, but when you hear the uh, the dedication audio, you will hear that she did talk in chimp- chimpanzee. <laughs> but she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Very friendly, very warm, uh, very soft-spoken. And uh, it, it really was uh, you know, a thrill to be able to speak to her. And obviously, Joe Rohde, from a geek perspective, was just, <laughs> you know, he really is the, the poster child for, for Imagineering at this point. Nice. <laughs> so after that, um, speaking of Joe Rohde, as part of the day's events, really not open to the rest of the public, but specifically for cast members, but that the WW Celebrations team was also invited to was a private talk in the theater in the wild from Joe Rohde. And I assume both of you guys got in as well. We sort of got separated. But for me, this was really one of the highlights of the day. Yes, absolutely. What a, what a treat that was. And just looking around the, uh, the auditorium and seeing everybody in their, their Animal Kingdom uh, cast member costumes and scattered amongst them were, were us with our little lanyards. What, a, what an exciting treat. 
Yeah, and it's also what's also cool is a lot of times we take for granted when when we see the parks, we're just amazed with what they bring to the table. But Joe, when he was talking, he you know brought up the fact that the first time that they had had their initial meetings on Animal Kingdom was back in 1989, which was the same year that MGM Studios had opened. So being able to kind of get a history of um, you know all those discussions, also see some concept art that never even made the. Uh, I guess the drawing plans, uh, it was kind of interesting to see that because the mind can only wonder if some of those ideas had gone forward, what the park may have looked like. But there was a lot of details and considerations when they were doing their planning, uh, when they did trips over to Africa and Asia, what they had to consider in order to make a theme park that was really going to not only stand out, but was also going to address the story that they wanted to tell. Yeah, and to hear directly from the person who for the most part, conceptualized the park and it, and many of its attractions, like Expedition Everest, and hear him talk about the process of going from thought to drawing board to research to creation was a wonderful journey. And rather than play that on the show, I did tape it. I'm going to put it in the downloads section of DisneyWorldTrivia.com so you can go and download and listen to it. And even without the visual uh, that he that he brought to it with, like you said, some of that concept art and some of the photographs. You really get a wonderful sense hearing from him about the, the the detailed thought processes that went into every aspect of what you see to tell that story. We talk about how important story is, and clearly it was for them as well. And uh, whether you are a hardcore Disney geek or just a fan of Disney's Animal Kingdom or just curious about the process, I think it was really a fascinating discussion. I'm really really happy we got a chance to to sit in on that. Absolutely. One of the uh, things that was so strong about it, I mean, we all know now to go to make sure we're looking around and taking in stuff, but he added things into that. So now I'm even more excited for my next visit there to look at around, look around and noticing things with certain things in mind, like uh, the, uh, uh, the architecture versus nature type thing that I am now very aware of that when you're walking around the park, the further you get from the oasis, the more nature seems to be taking over, like the buildings. Uh, and now I see that everywhere, and I was never aware of that so much. Absolutely. Uh, after Joe Rohde's talk, the celebrate the Wild Decade group had a uh, group showing of Finding Nemo. Then they were also going to do a group ride of Expedition Everest. But uh, my stomach got the best of me at that point, and we decided to go. Uh, a bunch of us went for lunch over at Yak and Yeti um, rather than do the attractions. And then at 2 o'clock, they had another one of their history walks. This time it was with John Crigliano and Tom Corliss. I didn't get a chance to do that because I was stuck, and I don't use stuck in a bad way, but stuck in line for a Joe Rohde signing. Um, I was able to spend some time and and have a couple minutes to talk with him, have him sign some things for me, uh, which was just a, a real thrill. Did, now, what did you guys do? Did you get anything signed, or did you go over to the history wall? Eric? I personally got uh, stuck in in the same line with you. Um, yeah, I missed the history walk, and it really is a shame because uh, John had done such a great job over at, at during Celebration 25. But like like you said, I got happily stuck in line for two hours to to meet and shake hands with Joe Brody, and uh, he signed my uh, ball cap and he signed a book I had. Uh, we we got some group pictures with some of our some of our buddies that were down there, and uh, we even had a great time in that hour and a half line waiting to see him. 
Yeah, I'm really sorry that I missed the history walk. I really enjoyed what John did last year. And when I spoke to him and some of the other people that were in attendance, they said it was really great. They did a nice job. And Disney was very accommodating of letting them explore the entire park. Uh, after that, we had a, uh, a lunch. And we had a reserved section up at Flame Tree, which was really nice. And this sort of really embodied the whole day for me because it was just a chance to sit down and enjoy the day with friends. It wasn't about riding attractions for me. It was sort of just wandering through the park, spending time with friends, and that's really what we did for a couple hours up at Flame Tree. I, I got to agree with you, Lou. I mean, the, these events are fantastic, and uh, but the best thing about them is how they bring a bunch of people together that uh, otherwise can't get together. And, and you know, you, you get stuck with somebody who suddenly it's like you've known them forever. And, uh, you know, you hit it off immediately and you get to spend some time sitting around, sitting down, enjoying the park, enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying the food, and enjoying the fellowship. Yeah, Eric, I mean, you and I spent, you know, what, a couple hours... Uh, by Drinkwalla in in Asia, just sitting down, having some you know tea or coffee, whatever, meeting some new people and talking to some people who were and weren't part of the event. And again, that that really was was some of the most fun that I had during the entire day. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of the families that we um, you know were just happened to be in the area when we were talking. I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't sure. I came in a little bit late. I don't know if they knew that Animal Kingdom was celebrating its tenth. But you know, one of the families in particular, this. They had just gotten a fast pass uh, for Expedition Everest, and they had never ridden it before. So, it was kind of cool uh, being able to talk to them about the ride. Uh, so you could definitely see some uh, fear and anticipation in a couple eyes. Uh, but later on, probably about an hour later, we actually got to go on the uh, the same ride, the same you know, the same car as them. And watching them come off, you know, it's kind of cool because we've been there so many times, we take it for granted. And then you see somebody who's experiencing some of these things for the first time and just having that opportunity to see their reactions, see their faces, and even get that first count story afterwards. Yeah, to watch her, his daughter's face go from fear and anticipation to that wide-eyed, wide-smiled excitement when she came off looking for right. her next chance to go back. And that's what I love about doing exactly just that. Yeah, and we weren't even sure if they were going to make the ride. There was that last-second... <laughs> thought of uh maybe i shouldn't do this but you know once they did it i think that you know they obviously had a blast and you know, i would probably say they would have done it again in a heartbeat definitely and as the night uh started to wind down we went over to dino land for the group photo with the wild decade um uh, attendees and we also had a, a really nice presentation of a donation from wdw celebrations to my Dream Team project. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to play that audio as well. Uh, forgive me because it didn't take more than about two lines for me to start getting choked up just <laughs> about the whole thing. But I, I can't thank those guys enough as well as everybody that contributed and bought the DVDs and bought merchandise to help make that happen. Um, what they gave was, was very unexpected and I'm really very humbled and, and honored that they chose uh, my charity initiative to, to kind of partner up with and, um, and and I'm looking forward to working with these guys in the future. Fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was exciting for all of us, Lou. Absolutely. So, so after I composed myself, we all uh, we did the group <laughs> photo, and then we ended the ride with a, uh, a ride-on dinosaur, which, you know, <laughs> broke down at the very end, <laughs> kind of gave us a unique <laughs> perspective 
on the attraction. Um, but yeah, all- where, when else can that happen when almost every single person in the car took out their camera and was immediately snapping photos of what was inside the attraction with the lights on? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a race to get you know the first post up of of that of that last <laughs> dinosaur and the last drop. So, but you know, so so tell me sort of what you guys thought of the day as a whole from the you know looking back on ten year perspective to the fan gathering perspective to how Disney ran the event. Why don't you, Glenn, and then Eric? Uh, one of the most exciting things for me was was that, you know, I was there 10 years ago when they just opened the park, and it was interesting for me that now, how much the, how they always say that the that park, like all their parks, will continue to grow, but that one, more than any, as you, you walk in, the uh, foliage has grown so much that... What used to be the Tree of Life used to be able to see almost like all the artwork around that Tree of Life just by circling it. Now you really have to follow these little hidden paths and all these secret areas to find the artwork. So now the as the trees have all grown in, it's become a place filled with these hidden treasures. And uh, if you take a right, suddenly you'll find you're at the Otter exhibit or something like that. You don't. It's not always... Um, it's it's not like the other Disney parks where you had the the weenie to pull you in. It's almost like you have to explore there, uh, and it's very apparent after ten years that they've succeeded in that. Yeah, and for me, what I took away from the day, uh, you know, you and Jeff had talked about, I think it was last week, how with Animal Kingdom you really need to slow down and take your time. And in the past, I've been guilty of the guy who goes from e-ticket attraction to the major shows um, back and forth and then you know maybe hit up another park some point in the day you know for this this particular experience I it was very relaxed and you know I did not feel the need to rush and you know I noticed a lot of the details that I probably have missed and many people have probably missed uh, when they go to the Animal Kingdom so you know what I took away from it it was just an experience just to kind of relax take the time and enjoy what it had to offer. We still got to do some of the e-ticket attractions, still got to do some of the great shows, right. but Animal Kingdom really does have more to offer than a couple of you know major attractions or shows that most people go for that draw alone. All yeah. right, well, well, Eric, then, uh, of course, we understand there is no Indiana Jones and Temple of the Forbidden Eye there, so what is your favorite <laughs> part of Disney's Animal Kingdom? And then, Glenn, tell us yours. For me... Expedition Everest, you know, I'm an e-ticket attraction guy. Expedition Everest is probably my favorite attraction out of all the Disney parks that I've been to so far. Um, Surprise, Indiana Jones is actually number two. Uh, And I also say the Festival of the uh, Lion King is probably one of my favorite shows. I I know it's not on the scale that the new Finding Nemo is, but what I like about it, it's a very high energy show. It gets the crowd involved. And obviously, you know, the tie-in to the Lion King, which is a very powerful movie, especially with the music. Those are probably two of my uh, favorite parts of Animal Kingdom. On uh, Everest, the, the Everest ride is is fantastic and is especially strong in how it introduces the Yeti. When you finally do see the Yeti, the way the the ride curves up towards it, and you enter his domain, and it sort of a, a, it sort of presents the Yeti and you get closer and closer that that is just phenomenal um, but I do believe that for me the Finding Nemo show is 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 practically Broadway caliber and uh, so I enjoy that tremendously and get goosebumps and uh, you know a, a tear can form in the eye pretty easily with that 
but I think my favorite thing to do now is is walking around and and taking in stuff that I'm and exploring and finding finding new new ways to find places, etc. And I look forward to my next visit. I agree, and, and I'll qualify my answer by saying that I do believe Expedition Everest at night is arguably the best attraction in Walt Disney World. You know, from my subjective opinion. But like you said, Glenn, what I like about this park is not necessarily the attractions themselves, but the park. Being able to explore Harambi, being able to explore Asia, those different little nooks and crannies that sort of are off the beaten path and you might not necessarily find on the map, but you can find and sit and enjoy and look around. And there's so many little details that you could pick up um, during that time. And I think that's really one of the assets to the park, you know, and, and when I was kind of thinking about this, I said, you know, the Magic Kingdom is kind of that, you know, when you use a, uh, maybe a single word to describe it, you, you might think of use of the word dreams, and Epcot is a place of imagination, and the studios is all about fantasy. What would be that one word, if you could, that you could think of to describe Disney's Animal Kingdom? Discovery. I would say life. That was three words before. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, explore or exploration. And I think that's the, you know, even Joe Rody said in his talk, that was, was part of the purpose. And in doing so, you're not just going to be entertained, but you're going to really gain an awareness of a lot of important issues in a very fun way. There's a real message to be gained here about confer- conservation, not just about the environment, but the animals that live in it. And I think the park, in all of its many facets and all of its many levels, does a great job in conveying that. Um, I want to thank you guys for coming on and coming to talk about the day's events. I, I think the uh, what Disney did, I think what WDW Celebrations did were wonderful. Um, you know, And I had a, a really great time with you guys and everybody else, and I really want to say uh, thank you. Lou, pleasure as always. Absolutely. Thanks, Lou. Eric, take care. Throughout the day, at Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary celebration event, I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with a number of cast members and individuals who were not only instrumental in the opening of the park, but really inspired the park to become what it is. And one of the people I had a chance to speak with was Val Bunting. She is the vice president of Disney's Animal Kingdom. She was also an opening day cast member, and I had a chance to briefly sit and chat with her about her involvement in the opening of Disney's Animal Kingdom and looking back on the past 10 years. Val, hi, my name is Lou Mangello from WW Radio. Uh, this was wonderful this morning, um, and I know you've been a part of Animal Kingdom really since the very beginning. Yes. Looking back on the past 10 years, tell me your, your impressions of the park 10 years later. Well, I actually opened the park as the operations manager for the Kilimanjaro Safari, so I've kind of moved through the ranks. Um, but I think what I've seen is just an incredible evolution of looking at what's great and taking it to greatness. Um, we've added new attractions. Um, we have added um, the Asia Land. We've added attractions in Dino Land. And most recently, which has been a home run, Expedition Everest and Nemo the Musical. So we just keep getting better and better. We're taking our feedback from our guests and our cast and just trying to expand upon it and continue to grow so lots of neat things happening for 10 years Lou I'm just very thrilled absolutely you talk about that evolution that really began with Walt Disney himself and his love of animals and the park 
has grown and evolved. Although, yep. you know, different parks have different messages and meanings, and Disney's Animal Kingdom is probably one of the most powerful anywhere. Yeah, I agree. I think this is probably um, where our cast love this park so much because they have a passion. They come to work not just entertaining but educating and who doesn't love you know mother earth and conservation and the animals so i mean i know even for me and i've worked at all four of the parks they all have a unique message but um this one is just something that's endearing to you and you have to have a, first, a personal favorite part of the park or favorite attraction? Well, it's, it, I was the first to drive the Kilimanjaro Safaris. I was here about a year and a half prior to opening. So Safaris is probably my favorite because with live animals and the unpredictability, it just never gets any better. It's, there's, no, there's no repeat show over and over. It's something unique and different all the time. And that's what I love. So it's here. And what do you think the future holds for, for Disney's Animal Kingdom? Well, though, although we have no plans at this time or announcements to be made, um, we are constantly, the great thing about Disney is we are constantly exploring new ideas, new avenues. Um, we're, we're looking at immersive storytelling. So I think you're going to see 10 years, really great things. What's happened is great. We're going to continue to go to greatness. So very excited about it, Lou. Absolutely. Thank you and all you're the welcome. cast for everything that you Thank do. Thank you. Appreciate it. I also had the chance to spend just a few minutes with legendary primatologist Jane Goodall. She is the woman who in the 60s ventured into the jungles of East Africa to study the area's chimpanzee population, and with her studies and findings had a profound effect in the field of primatology. She not only helped inspire and consult on Disney's Animal Kingdom, but in 2008, Walt Disney World hosted Jane Goodall's Global Youth Summit in 2008 at the resort. Because much like Miss Goodall herself, Disney has been focused on environmental responsibility that started back with Walt Disney himself and is a legacy that continues today through the actions, research, and programs of Disney's Animal Kingdom and the Wildlife Conservation Fund. So again, I had just a minute or two to speak with Miss Goodall, but here's an excerpt from that conversation. Miss Goodall, hi. Hi. You single-handedly help change the world really with your work and your efforts and your conservation, and you were very much an integral part of the formation of Animal Kingdom and the message that it conveys. Looking back now, 10 years later, how do you think it's, it's worked to spread that message of education and conservation and caring about the animals and the environment? I think it's that Animal Kingdom's done an amazing job. I think people who come here will be inspired. Some people come for the glitz of Disney and go away really having a better understanding of wildlife and its problems because there are interactive displays and pamphlets and so forth. And certainly through its conservation fund, conservation foundation, organizations doing conservation around the world are being helped, including the Jane Goodall Institute and some of our roots and shoots groups of young people who are working on conservation matters, you know, they're being helped too, and it's very exciting. Well, thank you so much for all that you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Disney's Animal Kingdom is so much more than just about attractions and shows and enjoying a theme park. It's about a message and an important message and about the animals that are so much of the storytelling that makes Disney's Animal Kingdom such a truly magical place. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Jackie Ogden, Vice President of Animal Programs at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Welcome and congratulations. Great. Thank you so much. This is such an exciting day for us. I was actually part of the pre-opening team of Disney's Animal Kingdom, so to be able to be here 10 years later to see all that we've accomplished as you said, not only are we a great theme park, you know, we have all of the qualities of being a great theme park, but we have accomplished so much from an animal and conservation perspective, and we're just so proud of everything that, we're, that we've done 
and so excited to see what we do in the next 10 years. I'm sure, and I'm sure 10 years later, you probably never would have imagined what you've been able to do. What are some of the things that you're really most proud of or really just looking back that you're just amazed you're able to accomplish? Well, you know, I'm proud every day of the incredible care that we provide for our animals, our wonderful veterinary care, our nutrition programs, our enrichment programs for our animals. We just care so deeply about all of the animals here. And I'm also incredibly proud of all the conservation work that we're able to do around the world, both the work that we fund through what's now the Disney Worldwide Conservation Fund, um, as well as the conservation efforts that our cast are able to do, both here in Florida as well as around the world. And then I think probably the thing that really gets me up in the morning is knowing the ability that we have to reach our guests and to really inspire them not just to care and be aware of what's going on with animals, but also to act for animals and to really change their behavior to help you know, show how much they care about wildlife and wild places. Absolutely. And what makes Walt Disney World such an amazing place is obviously the cast members. And I think not even more so here, but the cast members you see are so dedicated and so passionate, not just about working with the animals, but helping to educate the guests in a way that's very entertaining and very informative. It's absolutely true. You know, it, part of our legacy with Disney is education, and it's the animal piece. And so here at Disney's Animal Kingdom, we marry those two things together. And so our cast members, whether they're custodial cast mem- members, whether they're our animal keepers, whether they're our educators, whether our attractions hosts and hostesses, are so passionate about being able to deliver that message and to really inspire our guests to care about wildlife and wild places. And they do that in so many different ways, and it's just always inspiring to see. Absolutely. And it really does carry on the legacy that began with Walt Disney himself and his love for animals. It does, absolutely. You know, we, we're so proud of the legacy that Walt provided us with animals and with conservation, and we're just proud that we're able to do our little part to continue to carry that legacy on. Right. Well, thank you very much, and congratulations on the past 10 years and what the next many, many decades will bring to Disney's Animal Kingdom and us as guests. Thank you very much. You're bringing a tear to my eye. Thank you. <laughs> If I ask you to think about modern-day Disney Imagineering, one of the first names and faces and likely earrings that comes to mind is that of Joe Rohde. He is one of the principal creative forces behind not only Disney's Animal Kingdom, but lately Expedition Everest. He's currently the executive designer and vice president of creative at Walt Disney Imagineering, and I had a chance to speak with him for just a few minutes during the Disney's Animal Kingdom 10th anniversary event. What were some of the challenges that, that you faced as you were designing and creating the theme park? Well, you know, the, the fundamental challenge is the contrast between the illusion of the park, of this place of beauty and nature, and then the fact that, of course, it's this very, very complicated design machine that has to handle all these people and all these animals and all these things going on. And we don't want you, the guests, to have to think about any of that. So it is maintaining this illusion, maintaining the quality of this theatrical illusion is the everyday challenge of both design and operation of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, looking back 10 years later, what are some of your fondest memories or what was that opening day like for you? To see this finally be born after years and years of research. Yeah, opening day was very frantic, actually. <laughs> you know, running from one place to another to another. But I have had the privilege of being able to return again and again and again to Animal Kingdom and to watch it mature and to watch it grow. And I, I really can't think of any, a, any single um, moment that I would put my finger on, but I do love to come back and watch how it like a person, it kind of grows and matures and adds richness to itself. And that, I just think, is great. 
Absolutely. And what distinguishes Disney's Animal Kingdom from, I think, so many other places, like you were saying, is the fact that there is so much here to explore, that the park is to be embraced and savored, unlike running from attraction to attraction. And it's certainly not the half-day park. I think it's you can spend many, many days here because there is so much to see and so much to do above and beyond going from ride to ride. Well, I think that's exactly the point. This is a park to savor. Nature is something that you savor. You stop and you look and study and examine and absorb. Our, the Tree of Life, our icon, embodies that very spirit. It is an icon that bears calming down, taking a look, and that's when you're really going to enjoy it. And I think that's really something that the people who really know how to get their value out of Animal Kingdom are those people who take the time to really enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for much. all that you do. I appreciate it. After my chance to interview Joe Rohde, he answered some additional questions and offered some more comments about Disney's Animal Kingdom. I think when you're presenting an environment like this where people are free to pursue the stories they want to experience, you want to be careful that you're providing branches and webs and trails for them to follow, but each of those trails is different. And some people will follow that trail uh, to, to Rafiki's Planet Watch, to Conservation Station, and they can get incredibly in-depth uh, information about the work that we do. But the truth is, we're going to do the work anyway. He was also asked about what type of inspiration Jane Goodall was, not only to Disney's Animal Kingdom, but to him personally. Uh, Jane Goodall's a big inspiration. I I just was saying in my opening speech, I mean, the first time I saw her was 17 years old. And her, her dedication, she has this quality of just absolute hope absolute will that her actions will make a difference and we do try to emulate that we are after all we're just designers we're just doing a theme park you know but we really hope that this theme park will send a message and inspire people and touch people and that they really will go out into the world and do something fantastic with what they've been inspired to do and in response to a question about what was next for disney's animal kingdom he had this to say. There, uh, we, you, you, we cast and 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 then something will bite. And then you have to reel it in and hope that you can get it all the way to shore. But that process is so complex and so fraught with various kind of, of vectors of force that it's truly, in my years of you know daring the gods of production, I've just learned to never try to predict which of those fish is going to make it to shore and be landed. Is there a story you're looking to tell? I mean, you've got the Yeti, you've got Nemo now as a story being told. Is there a story you're looking to tell? Um, we, we really want to try to continue to expand and enrich the capacity of the park to tell stories that branch out and weave and pull in people from very different backgrounds and very different points of view. So the one thing I think is our goal is that Animal Kingdom will become more diverse and richer in its storytelling as we go on. For me personally, one of the most inspiring moments of Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary was when Adam Roth and Jason Diffendahl and other members of the WDWCelebrations.com core team presented the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project with a check of a donation that was gathered uh, from funds that they raised through some of their efforts. It's a gesture that will go a long way towards making some of these children's dreams come true. It really is a testament to the compassion and the giving spirit of the Disney community and something that I personally really appreciate. So we took some audio from the event that I wanted to go ahead and just share with you. So uh, as everyone knows, we are WDW Celebrations. We started out uh, early October, well, February of last year as a impromptu grassroots uh, fan organization 
bent on celebrating tw the 25th anniversary of Epcot. We ended up doing Celebration 25, and after that we said we had built up a relationship with the Walt Disney Company that we didn't want to let waste. So here we are today, a wild decade. We have had a great event so far. We've got a couple things to finish up with. But one of the things we tried to tie into our new organization, WDW Celebrations, was our charity initiative. And that's something that from now on we pledge to work into all of our events in whatever way we can. Um, and with Celebration 25, we did sell a DVD commemorating our event and giving people a look back at what we did. For those of you who were there, or for those of you who weren't there, they wanted to see what we could do. Uh, and $2 from each DVD were donated to charity, uh, put into an account that we would save up for our next event to donate to charity. And Lou Mangiello, uh, he runs the Dream Team Project, which we're going to let him explain, came to us early on in Celebration 25 to see if we would collaborate. And we figured out a way to earn some profits without being a commercial organization <laughs> to uh, give back to charity because we do feel that that is a very important part of our group. So between our DVD profits, our shirts, as well as the leftover funds from our, uh, our dessert, party. dessert party at Illuminations, we came up with a decent amount of money that we're going to announce. But first, I'd like to let Lou Mangiello explain what the Dream Team Project really is. Thanks, Adam. The, the Dream Team Project began for me very early on for very personal reasons. Uh, when I started to write my first trivia book, um, my father was... Uh, Wow, I didn't take long. My father was very sick, and um, after taking many trips to Memorial Sloan Kettering and seeing kids that really um, needed a little bit of magic, I decided that I wanted to give back very early on. And I didn't want to just take money and donate it for future research because these kids would probably never see it. They needed to get some of that magic now. So I formed what I called the Dream Team Project because we, we use the word dreams and we talk about Disney. And I wanted to raise money so that they could maybe experience Walt Disney World now. So thanks to the volunteers and so many people that donated time and money and everything else, uh, we worked originally with Starlight, Starbright Foundation. Now we take money from the sales of the proceeds of my books and other products that I have, as well as things like the Magic Meets Charity auctions, so many other fundraising efforts that we do, and donate it to make a wish. And uh, in the past year, we raised uh, more than $20,000, including $9,000 at Magic Meets. And I was humbled and honored when Adam and Jason came to me and said that we want to do something to give back as well, because that's what this is all about. And you know, I'm blessed to be able to do what I do and give back. And I can't thank you guys enough for including you know, my little thing as, as part of what you guys do. And uh, I really appreciate it. So as Adam said, we'd like to uh make our first of what we hope to be many donations to the Disney World Trivia Dream Team Project. We'd like to thank Matt Pizzula especially, who put together the Celebration 25 DVD uh, that was the, was the uh, source of a lot of the proceeds that we're gonna present today. And so between all of our uh, events and um, sales of merchandise so far, we'd like to present to the Walt Disney World Dream Team Project a check for $500 from WDW Celebrations. And we'd like to thank all of you, our guests, who make this possible. 
Um, we'd like to thank everybody who's bought t-shirts and DVDs and who will continue to come to our events. And we're going to have more charity initiatives at future events. So we hope to see all of you again soon. Thank you to everybody for sending in all of your email with your questions and your comments and your feedback. I want to get through some more this week, and I want to welcome back Jeff Pepper from 2719 to the show to help me get through some of your emails. Jeff, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. We said we're going to go quick last time. We ran long. I'm sure it's going to happen again this week, so let's go ahead and get started. The first email comes from uh, Frank, who said, Lou, great podcast. As we wandered around Walt Disney World last week on our vacation, I noticed that cast members would often point out certain buildings, attractions, and resorts that were personally designed by Walt Disney himself. This leads to the question, how much of Disney World that we see today was actually designed by him? Were each of the four parks part of the original vision of Walt Disney World? Is there some great plan in a glass case somewhere that the Disney company has been following all these years? Just curious, Frank. Well, Frank, obviously Walt was very, very involved in Disneyland, um, and, and in doing so, he really laid the groundwork for Walt Disney World, not just in the attractions that he had personally worked on, but I think for a lot of the future attractions and even, of course, things like Epcot uh, and eventually what became the studios and his love of animals, I think, sort of uh, grew the idea of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, we may never know exactly how many designs and concepts may have been born out of ideas that Walt directly had a part of that you know may have been shelved for years due to budget constraints or technology limitation issues. But I think it's safe to say, Jeff, that there is definitely a piece of Walt, maybe not in, in the, the blueprints of all these attractions that we see today, but in the general makeup and landscape of what Walt Disney World is now. Right. You know, Walt, Walt's passion for the Florida Project before he passed away was clearly Epcot, and that being Epcot, the city of the future, the prototype. Um, he had almost taken a step beyond theme parks at that point. He had done Disneyland, and, and while um, a theme park, the Magic Kingdom, was a very, very integral part of the plans for Disney World, Walt's real passion at that time in that development process was the overall kind of prototype city, um, you know, there was business parks, there was industrial parks. I mean, it was funny. My kids were asking me on our last trip, you know, they should put an airport here. And there was an airport in that original, you know, kind of scrawl design that Walt had done freehand. So uh, it, he didn't really have the groundwork laid out for things like, you know, MGM Studios or or Animal Kingdom. I mean, his focus was much almost more more broad at that, that point before he passed away. And, and the crucial part uh, that that Roy Disney and the rest of the company picked up on when they then did Disney World was to go with what was phase one, which was really pretty much how Walt had laid out the building of the area because phase one pretty much opened the way it was supposed to open. But beyond that, um, they kind of veered away from, from a lot of what Walt's vision was. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, Epcot was was so um, important to Walt on so many levels. And not, not that... He wasn't considering the other aspects of the theme park, and we we all know that he had a hand in many of the attractions, including things like Pirates of the Caribbean and Country Bear Jamboree. But like I said, I think there's probably a lot more that may not have been an opening day thing that he may have specifically worked on, but concepts that he have been, may have been a part of 
that we end up seeing today in other attractions? And it, it's a very interesting question, and I would love to hear, you know, from an Imagineer who, who could maybe come someday and say, yeah, you know, this attraction that we're opening now was actually born from something that was, you know, uh, buried in Imagineering somewhere or in the Walt Disney archives somewhere to, to know that Walt really had a hand in it. So, Frank, that's a great question. Thank you very much. The next one comes from Chris in Pennsylvania, who said, Lou, my mom works for a tumor foundation that raises money for marathons such as the Disney Marathon. I'm 14 and will be going with her next January to help out, and I wanted to do something really special for her, like a special dinner with just her and me, because I really admire the work she does. I was just wondering if you could suggest a few moderately priced, on a 14-year-old's budget, restaurants out of the park that I could take her to one day, love the show. It makes my Monday morning bus rides just a bit more magical. Chris, Chris, thank you so much. And, and I think this is a wonderful email. I think it's wonderful, not just what your mom is doing, uh, because you know how important things like charitable work is to me personally, uh, but what you want to do for her and the fact that you appreciate her work. The first thing that came to mind for me was taking your mom over to the Garden View Tea Room for afternoon tea. I covered this a few shows ago. I believe it was on show 59, which was probably around March 23rd or so. I think that's a really nice thing that you could do either in the late afternoon, early evening. It's not all that expensive. I think it's a beautiful setting. You've got the Grand Floridian. You've got the music, the Victorian atmosphere. And I think it's something that she will really, really love and remember and really appreciate from you. I think you nailed it, Lou. That's that's a dead-on great recommendation. Chris, again, th- thanks for that email, and, and thanks for sharing that uh, with me. Next email comes from Kevin Wheeler from Pennsylvania, near Villanova, my alma mater. And he said, Lou, great show. Just got the audio guide last week. Couldn't stop listening. Please keep them coming. They are Adventurelands on the way. But my question is this. We're coming down to, the Wal- to Walt Disney World in May and again in December of 2008. Me, my wife, and two kids... The kids are in college, ages 18 and 21. Is Pop Century okay for them, or is it too kiddie-like? For them, we normally drive down and stay at a moderate resort. This time we plan on flying and staying at a value resort in May, and then driving down in December. Thanks for everything you do, and that's from the Wheeler family. Uh, Kevin, I I love Pop Century. I've talked about this on the show many, many times before. I think it is a step above the other value resorts, the all-star resorts, in both theming, the rooms, the um, the pools, the dining options, really everything from top to bottom. And it really, to a certain degree, rivals even some of the moderate resorts. I certainly don't think that it's too kiddie-like for anybody. Uh, my wife and I go there and stay there by ourselves. Jeff, I know you are a huge fan of Pop Century as well. Yeah, we've actually fallen in love with Pop Century. Uh, we were big fans of Wilderness Lodge, and we still are. But for a more budget-conscious trip... We really love Pop Century. It's as you said, it's it compares very favorably with the value resorts. The theming, I mean, I could see where some people might not be tuned into the theming. It's very over the top, um, very huge, you know, figures of like Lady and the Tramp and Jungle Bull characters. But it's very convenient. It's closer together than something like Coronado Springs or Caribbean Beach Resort. Um, it's convenient. I, I could recommend that you get a preferred room and request a ground floor. If you do that, um, you'll be very convenient in walking distance to the, the main lobby, the food court, the arcade. Um, the, the pool, there is always a pool within just a few feet of wherever you're staying. And so, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. We really, really have come to depend on it now because in terms of it, it on a budget, if we want to take multiple trips through the year now, we can do it going to the Pop Century and not break break our vacation budget for the year. 
Yeah, and we just came back from Walt Disney World a few weeks ago. We stayed at Pop Century as well. Um, we normally stay in the uh, 70s or the, I'm sorry, the 50s building usually. This time we stayed in the 90s building. I like the theming. It was all kind of computer related. Uh, we had a room on the first floor. I, I, like you said, Jeff, everything about it um, is just fun. It screams Disney. And I think your kids, even at age 18 and 21, would really enjoy it. The only, the only caveat I'll throw in there, Lou, is that some this has been brought up here and there. Um, if there are four of you and you, they are the kids are grown, the rooms are smaller. Um, they're a little bit smaller than even the moderate resorts. And I've heard people mention that when the, the rooms do get that small, there can be a little bit of congestion if, it, if you're dealing with four adults in the room. Just throw that out. I personally, that would not bother me at all, but just kind of wanted to throw it out to be fair. If you want to test the limits of your familial love for a week, <laughs> four adults in Pop Century Room, let us know how it goes. <laughs> Next email is from Stephen Bernhardt, who said, Lou, we're heading to Walt Disney World in January for the marathon. By the way, congratulations on completing your first half marathon. Thank you. While we were there, we toured the Magic Kingdom and made our first ever visit to the Monster Inc. Comedy Club attraction. One thing I was curious about was why there wasn't any reference to Sully, who I believe is the primary character in the Monsters, Inc. movie. As you know, Mike and Roz are the featured characters in the Walt Disney World attraction, but why no Sully? I found this a little odd, and when I think Monsters, Inc., I think of a big blue Sully as the first main character. Thanks, and we'll be listening, Stephen. Stephen, other than having a bad agent, I, I really don't know why Sully is isn't in there. That's something that my family and I talked about the first time we saw it. Um, Jeff, Insight? The only thing I can think of, Lou, is that when you look at the dynamics of the movie, um, Sully was a straight man to uh, Mike Krasowski's kind of clown personality. And I think with it revolving around the comedy club and basically all the monster figures within the show outside of Raw's or very distinctly comedians putting on the show, I think that's probably where Sully kind of got the shaft because he's he's more of kind of the down-to-earth straight man. And he's almost, in some ways, he's the bigger-than-life hero of the movie. And I guess he his just didn't, you know, you can't really picture him going up on the stage and, and telling jokes. I think that probably is what he fell victim to. Yeah, but imagine, you know, Laurel and Hardy without Laurel and Abbott and Costello without Abbott. You know, it's like Mike and Sully without... I Listen, Stephen, I agree with you. I would like to have seen Sully in there almost as a straight man. And who knows, because of the dynamics of the attraction, because of the technology they use, who knows, you might end up seeing a Sully character sometime in the future. Next email is says, Lou, my name is Alan and I am nine years old. I always listen to your show with my mom. I was hoping that you could tell me about the Tapestry of Dreams parade at Epcot. Why did they stop doing it? Have you ever seen it? If so, did you like it? Alan. Alan, you are talking about one of my favorite parades ever in Walt Disney World. I loved the Tapestry of Nations slash Tapestry of Dreams parade. I still think that it had some of the best music that was ever in this ever in the parks uh, till to this day it, the tapestry of nations originally i'll kind of go back a little bit was created um for the 15 month millennium celebration in epcot it was originally going to be called everything from millennium 2000 to earth 2000 parade to something along the lines of caravan of the giants it was then changed to parade of nations then it became tapestry of nations uh, when the Millennium Celebration closed, that's when it changed the name and the parade ever so slightly to Tapestry of Dreams. That closed, unfortunately, in March of 2003. Again, this is one of the parades I loved. It had the the giant sort of puppet-like uh, characters in there. Um, 
it was a long parade. It actually ran in a number of different locations along the promenade. There was more than 150 performers. Um, there were drums. It was beautiful. Um, I know there were some logistics problems, especially when it got windy. But um, Jeff, like I said, this this was one of my favorite parades ever. Yeah, I, if there if there ever is a, a Disney World Hall of Fame, that is to me one of sort of the underrated entries in it because I agree with you 100%. Um, both incarnations were just simply spectacular and as you mentioned the music as with much of the music that was created for the Millennium Celebration you know with Reflections of Earth and then this as well just totally dynamic and the thing was is all of this especially with in relation to the Millennium Celebration it all interconnected much of the music overlapped and to this day um, if you stay at Epcot through Illuminations um, the exit music first Illuminations the music that's playing as you're walking back out of World Showcase after it's over is basically some of the music that was used in Tapestry of Nations and Tapestry of Dreams. Yeah, and I think I think it told a wonderful story. I think it was very colorful. I think the um, marionettes and the puppets and the different characters that were part of the parade really sort of identified what it was and made it so unique as opposed to anything else. And there were no Disney characters in there. I mean, there were things like the Dreamcatcher and the Discman and the Drummers and the Aztec and the Bird People, but they were wonderful and they interacted with the audience, um, especially kids. And I think that that's one of the things I remember about enjoying the parade so much. And and again, going back to the music, I think it was just exceptional. And just a tip out there: I do believe the um, the music is still available. It's the um, Illuminations Reflections of Earth disc is still sold at the parks. And the soundtrack for the Tapestry of Earth, or Tapestry of Dreams incarnation is on that. It's a very long piece. It's a, I believe it's about 20 minutes long. So if you're interested in kind of at least reliving the parade on an audio basis, um, you can pick that up. Yeah, it was also part of the the tag for Celebration 25 for when we celebrate Epcot's 25th anniversary. At the end of Illuminations that night, they did have a special finality that was set to the um, Tapestry of Nations soundtrack. So if you've seen the videos online or if you go and get the Celebrations 25 DVD, I believe they videotaped that and you can kind of get an audio-visual sort of reminder of what the parade music was like. Next email is from Melissa in Cleveland who says, Hey Lou, Mongello. Had to say it, it seems like the podcast community has taken your name to be a greeting said between two Disney friends, so as your friend I had to use it here. I'm enjoying your podcast, hardly ever ask you questions, since I'm more of an expert Disney vacationer and usually don't have things I can't answer, or if I do, you usually have an answer for me before I get a chance to send anything. But this time, I have something that was bothering me enough that I wanted to see if you or your contacts knew anything. I've gone to Disney between 10 and 15 times since I was 8 years old. Every time I've gone, the one souvenir I always insist on bringing home is one of the hardcover photo books that Disney sells in all the shops. Their cover usually has something to do with the theme of that year's promotion or just one of the parks that's being highlighted. I have inscribed inside the front cover of every book who went on the trip, the trip dates, and whatever else I felt was important, and I put a map of each park inside as bookmarks at the parks section of the book. That's a great idea. Okay, that's a lot of detail for this simple question. When we went last year in October 2007, all I could find in every shop I stopped in was a soft color photo book that pretty much was a repeat of everything from last year's book. That was it. There was no hardcover souvenir book anywhere. Do you know if Disney stopped making them? Thanks and take care, Melissa in Cleveland. Melissa, I can take care of this one, Lou. I, I'm with you because I think we're both on the same. <laughs> These are one of our favorite souvenirs, and I have ones going back to God only knows how early my earliest one is. Yeah, as a, a, from what I gather, um, I work 
kind of in in publishing books and through some of my research i stumbled upon um releases for both disneyland and disney world it looks tentatively that something new uh, a new hardcover book is going to come out this summer yeah and i think too i think they did start doing um books specific to the parks. I think there's actually a series of four books. I don't know if they're hard or soft cover, and I think you can buy them as a package. I think they come as a package of four, and I think there's a fifth bonus book um, in there that you can only get inside the theme parks. Um, again, I'm not sure if they're the same hardcover or soft cover ones, but again, Jeff, I know you and I use the old ones as reference materials all the time, especially when we want to go yeah. back and sort of look at some of the extinct attractions. Yeah, like I said, I, I saw something that was looking at tentative releases. It's it's kind of odd because since they are exclusive, that the information doesn't get out into places like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. But I'm pretty sure if if on her next trip, um, she should be, probably be able to find something. Cool, pick me up on it while you're down there. So, <laughs> all right, next email says Lou, thanks for the great podcast. I'm trying to catch up on past episodes, and I'm listening to the one about Horizons now. Talk about favorite extinct attractions. I can actually visualize the ride as you and that handsome man, Jeff Pepper, already I threw in the handsome part, are speaking. I'm also anxiously awaiting the Main Street USA CD that I ordered. Hopefully received it by now. But I have a question. Why does Disney need to have a sponsor for the attraction? I'm heading down there in 68 days, but who's counting? And based on the prices at the gate, they should be able to swing this stuff on that alone. I don't mind paying the price because I certainly have never been disappointed. But I don't understand the need. Maybe you could clarify this for me. Thanks again, Kim. Kim, I think if we, when we start talking about sponsors, and Jeff, you can definitely chime in here, this really is something that originated from the very, very early days of Disneyland, and, and there is definitely a need and a requirement for it still today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is the whole sponsorship dynamic started with Walt Disney at Disneyland, and it all goes all the way back to the fact that he had his very... The, the relationship with Disneyland, the television show, and ABC really was what built the park. And so there was basically sponsorship integrated into the very beginnings of Disneyland. And even since, you know, people don't realize, you know, there's the Monsanto House of the Future. There was the Hall of Chemistry um, in Tomorrowland at Disneyland. I mean, there was so much. And so much of your restaurants were actually, there was quite a few restaurants and things like that that were run by outside companies. In fact, the actor Don DeFore had his own restaurant in Disneyland. And so this dynamic that we see today where like things like Rainforest Cafe or the new T-Rex Cafe that's coming in is not that unusual to the Disney history of theme parks. And, and to be very honest, to answer the question, yes, the sponsorships are needed. Um, even though that gate price is very, very high, the... The sponsorships do subsidize the building of these attractions. I mean, uh, Epcot would not have been built or have probably been the, the success that it was and still is without sponsorship money. Um, it is it is very much an integral part of getting the high budgets for these very, very expensive attractions. Yeah, and that's exactly the, the example that I was going to use was specifically Epcot. And I think to a certain degree, too, places that you'll see in the Magic Kingdom that have references to sponsors are to a certain degree, carried over from those early Disneyland days. I mean, you're not we're not at a point where you're seeing, you know, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh sponsored by Jeff Pepper, but there are some subtle references to, to sponsorships in and around the parks. And when you're talking about building an attraction, for example, like Test Track, that's going to cost, you know, upwards in the, the tens of, of millions of dollars, you need to have that, that corporate presence 
in order to to do it. And certainly World Showcase, we, we alluded to in the past, uh, how important those sponsorship were in order to make those pavilions happen. And, and the lack of sponsorship is is one of the reasons that we haven't seen some of those pavilions that were on the drawing board ever get built. And I mean, to you know, not to sound, you know, too, you know, pro Disney in, in terms of, you know, defending theme park prices, because we know they are very high. Your prices at the gate would probably be significantly higher if there wasn't sponsorships involved. Absolutely. But a great question, though. Thank you very much. Next email says, Lou, I love the show. It gives me my weekly fix of Disney magic on a cold winter morning. I must say, though, that sometimes you refer to things that I don't know what you're talking about. Case in point, in this week's show, you and Jeff Pepper talked at length about big figs. What is a big fig? I assume you're not talking about sizable fruit. Thanks. And that comes from M. M. We don't need we, we need Eric Hollister here, don't we? <laughs> yeah, Eric Big Fig Hollister is the guy to talk to because he has about 25 or 30s of these stacked God only knows where in his house. But yeah, I, I apologize. Sometimes I maybe we do, Jeff, make references to things and we take for granted that people know, um, especially if we're, we're talking about sort of uh, um, an abbreviated version of it, what they are. But Disney Big Figs are Disney Big Figures, and they are character statues that are collectibles. They are big figures that range from probably about 18 to maybe 25, 30 inches tall. They are, um, I believe they're resin. They have um, a lot of different Disney characters. They are hand-painted, and they are usually in either different scenes or they may be uh, in different sort of um, character outfits. So you'll have the the Fab Five. You'll have uh, Mickey sometimes dressed as a pirate. You might find Mickey and Minnie in wedding garb. You might find uh, other themed things like uh, Mickey themed to Star Wars Weekends or the Fab Five of Star Wars Weekends. You'll also find Nightmare Before Christmas very popular. Characters like Jessica Rabbit, extinct characters like Mr. Toad. Uh, you'll find Big Al. You'll even find some some uh, scenes like Tomorrowland or Adventureland. I remember when we were in Disneyland, Jeff, they had a cool Main Street USA yeah. big fig. And they run anywhere from about, I'd say, maybe 125 to maybe $175, sometimes upwards of $200. Many of them also come out, especially the Star Wars ones, come out in limited number. Um, they become very, very popular. You can still find some of those on eBay uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, I can tell you, I have a couple. They It's very easy to become addicted to them if you have the space to put them up. Um, but really, really cool and like a, a great way to bring some of your favorite characters home. And it also, what, what's really cool about them too is they bring you sort of the scale and scope of the parks and into your when you put one of these in your living room or in your family room or your rec room or whatever it really it it puts you right there in the, in the theme parks in terms of size of of the characters and scope yeah and they're they're incredibly well detailed and very very well done and you know if you're a pirates fan there's i mean i'm, I'm sure by now there's probably 10 different pirate ones that you can get uh you can look online you can go to to uh, DisneyShopping.com. You can buy new releases there. I believe on eBay, like I said, you can still find them. Obviously, in all of the Art of Disney stores on property, that's the best place to find the new ones that are out. They usually probably have, I'd say, a dozen to 15 different ones that you can still get. Um, sometimes you can even find some of the older ones. But again, like I said, you can also get an idea from, uh, from DisneyShopping.com. Next email is from Tara in South Carolina, who said, Lou, I've been subscribing to your podcast for nine months now, and although I listen to other Walt Disney World ones, 
blasphemy. Yours is by far the best and most informative. Okay, you redeemed yourself. All right. I really like the segments that you do with Jeff Pepper as well. Oh, my God. Jeff, did you did you line this I, up? I orchestrated this all of this. This is great. <laughs> Let's get that thread going back oh, on the forum. That's like two references pause. to Jeff Pepper in one week. Anyway, moving along. The reason why I'm writing this is that my family and I will be going to Disney World in September, taking advantage of the bounce back free dining promotion. Our first day down will be the day of the Animal Kingdom run, and my husband and I both hope we'll be able to meet you while we're there. I hope so as well. Uh, I'm currently planning on my ADRs, and although we have many favorites, we want to try some new places as well. I was wondering if you had any information on the Tokyo Dining Restaurant in Epcot in the Japan Pavilion. Jeff, right up our alley. Uh, I can't seem to find out much about it other than a menu. My husband is a big sushi fan. I like him already. And although I know that the separate sushi menu isn't included on the Disney dining plan, but do you know if the regular menu items that include some sushi are on the plan? Also, do you think that my kids ages six and two would prefer Teppan Edo instead? Thanks for the great podcast. Keep up the great work. Tara in South Carolina. Jeff, again, appropriate that you're answering this with me because we all know what big fans we both are of Japan even though she did reference you by name. Um, I'm going to hit the, the one of your questions first, which is which of these might be better for kids? I think you may be better over at uh, Tep and Edo for kids because there, that's when you sit down at a, a long table. Uh, usually I think it's about eight or so people and they cook right in front of you on the open grill. You really get a show along with your meal. And I know kids... You know, two and six would just love it. I've brought my young kids there. They really, really enjoy it. I think the food is exceptional. The, also, the kids' menu, you can get kids' teppin. Uh, you know, the, the food cooked right in front of you. Uh, right there, they have chicken, they have shrimp, which is about $12 each. But they also have an okasama set, which has things like tempura, teriyaki chicken, and vegetable croquettes. The uh, Osama set, the kids' menu in Teppan Edo, is exactly the same as in Tokyo Dining. So now you have even more of an option as far as food is concerned for your kids. You can get sushi in Teppan Edo as well as Tokyo Dining. Uh, Jeff, we ate there last year. I don't even remember when a bunch of us went, and we really, really enjoyed it. And actually, um, my family just ate there again on our last, just most recent trip a couple weeks ago, and it is now becoming a tradition. I think we're very likely like Boma going to hit that restaurant every time we go there because my kids are absolutely nuts for Teppanetto. Um, as you said, it is the perfect spot for kids. The kids just love the whole performance part of the meal being fixed for you. The food is great. And my two children have become unusually so for kids, huge, huge sushi fans. And so the sushi um, is served there in Teppanetto. You can get it pretty much as you're getting it from the other restaurant. And it's very, very good. I'm not a big sushi fan, but I tried some California rolls and they were great. So I, I really enjoyed it. And my family just loves it. Well, I am a huge sushi fan and I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed the sushi at Teppanetto. So Tara, if you and your husband want to get together during the Animal Kingdom weekend for some for some sushi and, and Teppan, I'd be happy to join you because Jeff, like you said, I really, really enjoy both sides of the restaurant. And you can get sushi on both sides. They do have a variety of things. Like I said, over at Tokyo Dining, they do have a lot of tempura, um, uh, breaded deep fry. They also had Japanese-style grill um, items that you can get as well. So a wide variety dining-wise. I mean, you can go to both restaurants back-to-back and get completely different dishes um, and completely different atmospheres, even though they're in the same building. So I think you'll you'll 
do well in either ones. But I think for your kids, I think they would probably like um, Tepan Edo a little bit more than they might like Tokyo Dining. So that is going to do it for this week. Jeff Pepper, I want to thank you for coming back and answering some of these emails with me. Don't forget, if you have any emails that you want answered on the show, you can email them to lou at wdwradio.com. And also, if you want to call in with your voicemails with any questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Thanks, Lou. Always a pleasure. Asante sana, and thank you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I also want to say thanks to everybody involved with Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary and the Wild Decade celebration, all the cast members that made it possible, and of course, my special guests, Val Bunting, Jackie Ogden, Jane Goodall, and Joe Rohde. Thanks as well to Eric, Glenn, and Jeff for joining me on the segment, on the events, and in answering your email. I want to take just a second and give a very big congratulations to DisneyWorldTrivia.com's own Justin M., who on this past Earth Day, as we were celebrating Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary, he was being crowned the very first Disney's Chief Magic Official. I am really, really happy for him, and actually he'll be joining me next week on the show to talk about the contest and what's ahead for him in the future. Remember, if you want to be on the air, you have a segment suggestion or a question, a comment, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939. Be sure and visit our show notes page for more information and links to topics I covered this week. You can also find some of my recommended products and services, such as Owner's Locker for your own personal secure storage locker. I use it. I love it. And I could not imagine vacationing to Walt Disney World without it. I can't say highly enough about how valuable my Owner's Locker has become to me. For more information, you can visit ownerslocker.com. Also, be sure and check out Orlando Fun Tickets if you are heading down and looking for official and discounted Disney Park tickets. I highly recommend checking out orlandofuntickets.com, as well as my recommended travel provider, who is Mouse Fan Travel. They specialize in Disney vacation destinations, and they also offer you free, no-obligation quotes over at Mouse Fan Travel. On the site, you can also pick up your official wdwradio.com logo items and shirts right on the site as well as links over to DisneyWorldTrivia.com, where you can get my audio guide to Walt Disney World, Main Street USA on CD or download, as well as my Walt Disney World trivia books. And you can discuss anything you hear on the show or anything Disney over at our fun, friendly, and very welcoming forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. We have just about 27,000 members and growing, but still remain a very fun, a very friendly community. So I invite you to come by and check that out. In the next couple of weeks, I'll have another DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, with Jeff Pepper, more trivia, exclusive interviews, some travel planning tips, and some more. I'll also have more live audio from the parks, and I'll have some more information about how and when you can join me as I record some live segments from inside Walt Disney World. And of course, if you like the show, please review it in iTunes, and more importantly, please help spread the word and let others know about it. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in again. See ya. Now, please, get out!
You know the drill. Check for personal belongings. Take small children by the hand. Yada, yada, yada. Moving in an orderly fashion toward the exit. No pushing and shoving. Come on. Move it! We haven't got all day. We got another one of these babies to crank out, and Pumpa needs a butt break. So, from all of us here to all of you there, thanks for coming, and have a wonderful day out there in the animal kingdom. Goodbye. See you soon. Lou, hi. This is Jason from Kentucky. Love listening to the show. In fact, my wife and I have scheduled our first family trip. Uh, where it's my wife and I, my mother, and my daughter, who's two years old, going to Disney for her first time. So we're very excited about that. And I also wanted to say I'm very excited. Uh, you kind of uh, reading an email, I believe, the other day concerning some sacred, not uh, from Kingdom Hearts, that's it. Some Kingdom Hearts uh, places, memorabilia, novelty items, etc. There are the park. Huge fan of the games and the books and wanting to crave more and more. So thank you a lot. Thanks a lot for passing along that information. Hey, Lou, this is Doug from New Jersey again. I was calling you. I was listening to another podcast, and I had a good idea for a topic for you, I think. It was about giving more rewards to people who come. The more you go to Disney, the more rewards you should get. I didn't hear nobody bring this up, but I think they should have some kind of thing where, like, you, where you, when you pass it, like you're at the supermarket or you're down to casinos, which I really don't go to a lot, but the more times you swipe your card and, and times you're there, that points will add up, and you should get rewards for showing. Like you go to casino, you go to casinos for a weekend, and you get rewards. They'll send you a free room. Or like you're, if you're down at the Magic Kingdom, all that time spending money, you should be out of like you're at the supermarket when you get your value card. And at the end, the end of the year, to give you a ham or a turkey. But you know, Disney should do something more like that for annual pass holders and people that are there all the time and stay at the hotels and, you know, spend the money. So that's one thing that me and the wife always talked about. They really don't give you much back. All right, Lou, thank you. Do have a wonderful show, and thanks. Have a good day.